Welcome to Radio Contra, the podcast of AmericanPartisan.org and hosted by the Commandante of the Mossy Oak Militia, C. Scout. And it is great to be with all of you out there for another episode. I've got an incredible guest on right now, a guy I am honored to have on. He has been a featured guest over on Tim Pool's podcast. And I am blown away continuously by the the level and quality of guests that we get. And this guy is certainly top tier among those. I am joined by Steven from Fortitude Ranch. What's up, brother? Hey, glad uh, you reached out. And um, I'm myself thankful for the opportunity to speak with you uh, in your audience. I am the COO of Fortitude Ranch. We are a survival slash recreational uh, organization with uh, several locations, Colorado, West Virginia, Wisconsin, Nevada, and Texas currently. And we look to continue to expand. Um, It's a uh, money-heavy thing to do. So we're always seeking investors in order to try to get to the point where all of our members can reach their individual ranches on one tank of gas because in a collapse situation, that's very important. And I'm also COO of Survival Housing. This is a new launch for us where we're going to be doing consulting for folks who are looking to uh, set up their own bug out location. Maybe we're not close to them uh, and try to provide housing solutions as well. So we got our we got our hands full because the situation, unfortunately, is not looking too good. No, no, it's not. And, um, you know, I was very, very impressed when uh, a listener of Tim Pool's and a listener of mine also together kind of reached out to both of us and said, hey, you know, I think this would be a good fit. I think this would be a good guest. I was blown away by that because I have heard you. I heard that interview with Tim Pool. I have heard, um, you know, of, of what you guys are doing with Fortitude Ranch. I think that your mind is absolutely in the right place and it is providing something that is desperately needed. I mean, I get a lot of patriots, a lot of preppers, a lot of folks who come to class uh, on my end, and they have those questions. They have, you know, how do you you build a community of like-minded people? How do you network with people? How do you do all of this? And there's, there's usually not necessarily a clean answer in all cases for that. But at the end of the day, something that I have said consistently is that you have to be the change that you are looking for in the world. It has to begin with you. And you guys, yourself, your company, y'all are really laying the foundation for that. You know, it's, it's a hallmark of if you build it, they will come. And that is exactly what is happening with Fortitude Ranch. Yeah, absolutely. And and one of the key things to we believe the superiority of our model is having, you know, not only the like minded community and and we do training exercises, um, folks come out and use uh, the recreational side. I mean, that's not a big part of what we do, but we do try to give members a bang for their buck. Um, And when they come out, I, I get to meet them build that rapport, build the confidence that we'll need if we ever have to come to a point of activation. And then long-term survivability isn't just about having 10 ARs and, you know, 10,000 rounds of green tip, 556. You have to have an ecosystem because there's just no way to store that amount of food long-term. And therein is the difference in what we do with most other models. You know, amen, brother. And and I'm glad that you said that because that's something that, 
you know, whenever you talk to somebody who is a been there, done that guy or gal uh, for the ladies out there, they always point that fact out that, you know, all right, so you've got rifles, you've got ammo. Okay, cool. What next? What do you do next? And food storage training is is a huge one in a multitude of tasks. You know, it, it, you have to be literally a Swiss army knife, but you have to sleep sometime and we can't master all of these skills. So it takes a community. It takes a community to be able to do that. And you guys are, are really working on that in earnest. It's really amazing. Um, if you will talk about what brought you to the ideas of preparedness of sustainability of survivability what was your your life experience that really woke you up to the fragility of all of this yeah i guess well so it all started i went into the military uh right out of high school um came from poor family you know so i grew up right from the very beginning uh knowing what struggle was I uh, went into the army for the GI Bill. You know, there was no active wars going on at that time. I, I graduated in 1983 and then uh, I joined. I was I was nukes for five years, Pershing two missiles that were based in Germany because uh, it was the height of the Cold War. And then once that was negotiated away and we did away with the Pershing twos, I reclassified into being a military intelligence analyst and spent the last part of my time in the army doing that. Um, I was uh, deployed for Desert Storm. Uh, we were, I was, I was uh, attached to 1st Cavalry Division at, at that point in a uh, air defense battalion. So we had mobile stingers and that type of thing. Uh, so I spent the, we were first in, you know, after 82nd, but uh, kind of last out because we had, you know, first Cavs, one of the heaviest divisions in the world with your with the Abrams and attack helicopters and, uh, you know, we're, we're mobile and we're strong. And so uh, when I left there, um, I got out, used my GI Bill to uh, get an education, which was my, you know, my goal primarily uh, for going in. But, you know, I was a patriot. I, I was all in for serving him. And I believed in my country. Uh, after I graduated from college, I got a humanitarian organization that I started up um, my own. I started it from scratch, raised the funds and then went over to the country of Belarus and spent uh, a little over 12 years there because there was a great need after the Chernobyl nuclear accident and all the problems that they were having. And we primarily went into the hospital systems, upgraded and updated and fixed them up. Uh, at the village level in, in small towns and cities, because that's where the folks who really needed it uh, in a system like Belarus and even Russia, that it it's tiered. It is to a degree here in the United States, but even more so over there where the haves have it all and can get all the medical care and quality care. But if you live in a village in one of the collective farms, I mean, it was just horrible, man. It was it, it was. Uh, like ancient times. And so we did that for many years. But uh, then I, the effects of being um, exposed to nerve agent, sarin gas from when I was in Iraq and, and we blew up a munitions dump slowly uh, caused me a, a multitude of physical problems that uh, I had to really uh, retire from that. Um, fortunately, my son, who was raised over there he uh he picked up the mantle and he's actually still in belarus right now which is quite a complex uh situation for him and his family um but he carried on the torch and then i came back to the states uh i was down and out for a year and a half almost two and then when i got back on my feet i was looking to get back in actually to helping people again i i've i really just as a person have had this desire to serve and to help uh, whether it be military or whether it be one-on-one -on -one in Belarus. And so this job opportunity with Fortitude Ranch came up. It was about four years ago. And I drove down to West Virginia. Uh, I did an interview with the CEO and founder, Dr. Drew Miller. I was hired on the spot, went back to 
Maine, sold my house and came here and uh, started working just as a regular hand um, and worked my way up to COO. Man, that is awesome. That is awesome. And, you know, I, I want to first, man, there's so much to dive into there. First, your work, your humanitarian work in the former comm block uh, in, in Belarus, it, you know, having an upfront view to the wreckage of the Soviet system, because they absolutely wrecked Belarus, Ukraine. I mean, it, you know, in Russia, too. Um, you know, th- their whole social system and, and system of governance is just, man, it, it would, you know, in, in the Baltic states as well. And of course, all of that's coming to the forefront right now. You know, we're, we're seeing it all again on many different levels. Um, you know, how did your work as a humanitarian, as going over there and, and building these communities up, especially with small farmers, you know, it seems like to me you, you brought those skills and, and that uh, at least the relevance of organization, the understanding of organization back to the United States. And that that obviously applies directly to what you're doing with Fortitude Ranch. How how is it? Uh, let me let me think of how to rephrase this question. Um, what experiences over there that you see kind of parallel the situation here? Well, so yeah, even tying that into your uh, initial question about you know the mindset of preparedness and all that, it, it's been you know it's been I didn't live it right, so you wouldn't call me a prepper. I, I the, I lived that way because that's the way people live outside of a first world country. We were so spoiled that we have to form a group that are known as preppers because those folks understand the need not to be reliant on the government and the fragility of our system. And so it was just uh, I lived it, didn't didn't be was never a part of a prepper group, if you will, and especially there, right? So the same thing with long-term survivability. I mean, these are folks that work on a collective farm. They their housing was provided for them, but they were paid next to nothing. And so everybody had a dacha, which is some land given by the government. So you go out and you plant a farm every single year you do all the work and then you bring it back to your root cellar in russian it's a podval and and you store up food through the winter so that you can make it to spring and do it all again because you just don't have the kind of monies and the accessibility that we do here in the united states and take for granted i mean the average person didn't own their first car until they were 35 years old because the, there's no um there was no credit system. You would have to save, save, save. And then one day, if, if that was something that you needed, um, then you put your gold towards that and then you would buy it. I mean, out in the villages, they still used, you know, horse drawn carts. They plowed with teams of horses. Now, they did have tractors, but they would, they would augment it with that. And you go and you buy your food fresh you know, from the corner store, that that bread was made either that day or the day before, and it's not wrapped. Um, it, 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 it'll it go bad in three days, no preservatives. Uh, so it, it's a completely different lifestyle. And we lived that way. We did not try to uh, live differently from the people with whom we were serving. And that, again, led me towards all the logistics and, and knowing how to, from military to living that way, then coming back to the United States. And I think it perfectly suited me for the opportunity to, you know, take part in what Fortitude Ranch was looking to do. The motto was right. And then, uh, you know, I had the the skill set um, to be able to help, you know, at a level, especially on the organizational side, you know, is a big part of what I do at the corporate level. But, you know, I'm right here in West Virginia. I mean, I may be COO of two companies, but I go out and feed the chickens and the goats every day. And, uh, you know, I still maintain that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you, you have to, you know, you, you absolutely have to, to stay active and, and something you brought up about the way that, that they're living in Belarus and that, 
you know, that, that level of systemic control and kind of the, I don't want to call it a rejection of modernity because it's not really a rejection. They're not actively living that way. Uh, some people in the United States do, and, and they're actively rejecting modernization and commercialization and everything. But they, they weren't doing it by choice. They were just doing it. I kind of, I've got a lot of friends in the ag sector um, here in North Carolina, and I've got a, you know, where, where I am in North Carolina, there's, you know, tobacco for, for centuries has been the staple crop and has been the big cash crop and, and really the driving force of the agriculture economy, uh, here in the state. And, uh, I knew some people who went to Cuba when, uh, relations were being normalized a little bit back during the Obama years. And there were some tobacco growers who were contracted um, by one of the cigar companies to go down to Cuba and, and kind of an exchange of ideas and observe what they were doing. And it was very much the same. Uh, it was very, very much the same uh, in the, the, uh, the uh, Pinot del Rio uh, region, which is uh, kind of known as as the Valley of of uh, the cigar leaf in in Cuba, that's uh, what they're one of the things they're famous for. They're still farming tobacco the same way, and so you know what what you just said about that was absolutely true um, for them as well. So it's like it's a theme that reciprocates over time with communist governments. But it also, though, it, I mean, we can we can dial in on the politics of it. But when we remove the politics, those people are also extremely sustainable when when you take the politics out of it, when you take the governance out of it and you just look at the individual community, they are very, very sustainable. And those people are going to be very hardened to adversity and hardship. Because they're used to hard work. They're used to dealing with that kind of thing. You know, it's a whole other animal, man. People people in America have a hard time, you know, if if the power's out one morning. I mean, you have whole right. swaths of the population freak out. I mean, they, they freak out over a thunderstorm. It, you know, we, it, I mean, in a lot of ways, and this is just an observation, um, in a lot of ways, man, it, there is something to be said for a more simpler, primitive lifestyle uh, as far as sustainability goes. What, what would you say to that? No, absolutely. Right. So, you know, obviously the 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 people who are most dependent are folks living in cities. Right. That that, that breeds the idea that I'm all set. I pay my taxes so electricity is always going to be here. The water is always going to be here. There's always going to be food on the shelves. And that helps to, you know, uh, create a false sense of everything's all right and will always be all right. Then as you move out to the suburbs, those folks are, are, are basically – uh, in the same situation, but at least they're out of the, you know, they're looking to raise their kids and not in the big city for, you know, that type of thing. They take the commute, but they're sort of in the same situation as well. And then when you get out to rural America, well, now you're talking about people who absolutely get it. And those folks are, you know, the ones that uh, live a way that is sustainable and know how to do the things that would be so very important if we ever got to a, you know, serious crisis or collapse situation in this country. So um, I get why, you know, folks kind of look down. I mean, so I've done a lot of media. Um, I was even on an episode uh, uh, with uh, The Daily Show um, reached out back when uh, COVID and all that was going on, but they always do it in a way that to try to make fun of who we are and what we do. Um, but it, it was kind of funny, uh, cause the guy was in New York and the skit was set up to be, you know, I'm completely unprepared and you got to correct me. And then in the end, you know, you can just tell me, you know, you guys are full and you don't want me as a member, this type of thing. Well, it was well, it was a comedy routine. It is the absolute truth of it all. 
And so people find themselves in, in different circumstances. And that's why we locate, you know, our ranches uh, about two hours outside of major cities because those are the folks that need the help. Right. I'm in West Virginia, but it's so rural. I don't have one West Virginian as a member. I mean, that should tell you something. They they hunt, they fish, they, you know, raise chicken cattle. There's nothing but cattle and chicken farms all around me. And uh, they have those skills that you just don't learn growing up in a big city or from behind a computer, which is there's nothing wrong with it. Don't, don't get me wrong. But speaking to the fact that uh, those would be the the folks most um, unprepared and in the most danger if things were to get out of hand. And, you know, we now live in the divided states of America, right? Not the United States of America. And this is yep. going to be generational. This this isn't going away any time soon. And it's going to complicate everything for everyone, you know, and fortunately, because we've been doing this now long enough, people are starting to wake up to the fact that they need to be more self-sufficient because the whole woke thing has, is, is completely going in the opposite direction and trying to uh, take care of everybody from you know cradle to grave. And it, it, it's just creating a very soft country and taking us away from what we need to be. I mean, basically Fortitude Ranch, we're a homestead if you really think about it, right? It's That's how we set it up because that's the only way to survive long-term or else you'd have to have literally a warehouse full of food and supplies. Uh, and that's just, you know, economically, that's not viable for any, you know, any organization or person to do. No, exactly, exactly. It, it, you know, a lot of people... A lot of people will cite the Mormon church as kind of an example. And I think that it, it is a good example. Uh, you know, part of the, the church doctrine is is to have a year's worth of, of food right. put away just in case you have crop failure. That That's where that came from, because as the Mormons migrated uh, as a religious group, they migrated westward. You know, the, the likelihood of crop failure was extremely high. So you had to put away a year's worth of food. It's part of their religious doctrine. And, um, you know, but that being said, you know, something revisiting something you were talking about growing up in Maine and, and being from from that culture up there. I mean, it was the same as it is here in the rural south. I've had a lot of students that have come from Maine. And there's a huge number of parallels between the 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 dominant culture in of of Maine, really in, in New Hampshire and Vermont, um, of of that self-sustaining, very hardy lifestyle that that northern uh, Allegheny Mountains, the Catskills Mountains of upstate New York. You know, I, like I said, man, I, I've had a lot of students who have come down from that region, and to kind of tie it all in. You know, they look at all of this stuff much like uh, a lot of Mormons do or people outside of the Mormon church, rather, is as, as being this individualized kind of deal where you, you put away enough food for the individual and you think of things in terms of calorie content and all of that. But the reality is, is that when you look at the, the Mormon church as an organization, they're an organization of people. They have a community, an underlying community. And when you get into the rural areas like where you came up and where I came up down here, it's the same. Once you are plugged into that local community, it is very much the same. Where you are living in West Virginia, I can tell you that, you know, the local fire department and the local church are going to have a stew every fall. And that is a community event when that happens. And so if you're plugged into that, if you're plugged into that rural community that you're in, you're going to understand and instantly recognize all these things to the point that you really don't even think that they're a big deal. It's just something that everybody does. You're like, oh, OK, these are all reflective of that larger truth that you're talking about, of how it requires a community to be able to do all these things. You should be people individually should be as well-rounded as possible. You know, you should bring the most number of skills to the table. You know, the, the uh, famous Robert Heinlein quote 
which I love. It talks about, you know, a, a man has to be able to master all of these skills. And that's true. But you can only accomplish so many tasks at any one given time. You have to sleep sometime, you know, and, and time management is critically important. You have to create a division of labor. You have to have people, you know, you absolutely have to have people. And the more um, the more people you bring to the table, the larger and stronger your community is going to end up becoming. The more uh, skills that you have that are brought out, you know, it, it, there's a lot to be said for that. And, and that's why I think um, with what you guys are doing, that, that's so critically doggone important. Now, I, I want to revisit something um, talking about kind of owing to your experiences in Belarus and, 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 you know, former, uh, com block Eastern Europe behind the iron curtain and dealing with the fallout of the iron curtain, obviously contemporary events, current events can't be ignored. And it's something that is really in the minds of a lot of people. Um, kind of break down for us if you, if you will, where you see all of this going in Ukraine and, and, you know, I'm not asking you to, to look through a crystal ball necessarily, but draw on your experiences to kind of give us an insight that, that maybe we wouldn't get elsewhere and where you think all of this may be directed and and what do you think the resolution to these things are going to be? Well, so the couple of things are apparent from, what we've witnessed thus far, right? Once the invasion started and you see sort of the mask coming off of, you know, Russia is at the level that we are militarily. Uh, and the problem there being is that we have a professional army. They don't. They're, they have for the majority of it, it's a conscript. Like in Belarus, when you turn 18, unless there's a serious medical condition, you have to go serve for two years. So you don't have people volunteering. And then once you enter, the training is not very good. You you basically eat gruel, and I'm and I'm not exaggerating. So I had one of the one of the young men who I knew. Uh, when, while working uh, humanitarian aid over there. So he had to go do his two years and um, I knew his, his family real well. So I would go with them over to the, the base that he was and everybody brought these people food. Now, I, obviously we get care packages in the military, but that's for the kind of things that you, you know, you're missing or some of the specific things you would like to have like peanut butter or a, or a Snickers bar. No, no, this was for actual sustenance because they, it's night and day. So I remember uh, I was there and because I was an American and because of my background in the military, the KGB called me in about once every three months, um, pour me a cup of tea and we'd sit across the table and they'd push this file over to me. I opened it up and what you see is a transcript of every phone call I ever made, the the latest email I sent out that that morning, and then just going by date back uh, all the way to the time I arrived there. And they kept a close eye, which I understand, small country. Um, why everybody who I got to know would be like, you have to be CIA or FBI. Why would you leave the United States of America to come here and live like a dog? I mean, that's, that's a quote. And uh, I tell him, well, you know, I'm, it's not about that for me. It's about, you know, I see a need. Uh, I had a desire to help and, and that's why I'm here. But to the point, so they, the, after the interview, the KGB guy wanted to go out to where we live and, and kind of headquartered the humanitarian aid that we did. And so on the drive back, he turned, he had a driver, right? So he's sitting in the passenger seat. He turns back, looks me in the eye and says, how much did you make when you were in the army? I said, from day one, I made $1,000 a month. He called me a bold-faced liar to my face. It, it, it <laughs> He did. He did. Yeah, yeah, no, I believe it. I believe yeah, it. it. It was unfathomable. And I said, I said, Google it. You could go. You don't have to take my word for it. I mean, that was base pay for a private. I went in as an E2, not an E1. But uh, I said, not just where it starts. 
and just blew his mind. And therein is the difference, you know. And one of the other things I mentioned on Tim Pool's podcast was and now we have an army, well, all of the military, that's been hardened through, you know, unfortunately, too many years in Iraq and, uh, you know, in Afghanistan. But now that everybody is basically, you know, be hard pressed to find somebody not wearing a, you know, the combat patch uh, on their shoulder. And we we definitely have a, a, you know, a leg up there. And I'm not not saying that, you know, there are there would never dream of wanting to go into that country and take them on because that's a whole different animal. That's what they're finding out in Ukraine. Yeah, they had superiority in numbers and and equipment, basically. But if if those people are not trained and everything's so top heavy down, right? You know, from being in the service, if if the LT or the captain goes down, then the first sergeant can take over, and, and we never miss a beat. Um, we have that NCO corps that is the backbone, and and they really just don't have that. They compartmentalize so much because. It's not a professional army. But with that being said, um, this is going to be, unless something changes, you know, continuingly to be more brutal. And we're starting to see the, excal- uh, you know, this this escalating militarily because they didn't think they'd have this difficult a time. Then from the other side, uh, you know, all the rushing of in of lethal equipment which you know i understand it's needed but it's going to up the stakes and then we're just heading toward a spirally effect that uh we're taking quite seriously as an organization and everybody listen listening should take it quite seriously because there's already been miscalculations from the russian side and you're talking about a group of people fighting for their homeland and uh, and they've lived that hardened life. They can live without electricity. It, it's like minus 20 right now. They can live in those conditions because they have. They've done that. I mean, outside of people in the major cities, but even them don't have all the amenities that we have. And, you know, they're all fleeing. So you, you get the ones that are really able to hunker down and they're not worried about it. I mean, they'll, they'll eat whatever they can, you know, they'll, they'll find a way to survive. And, uh, you know, it speaks a lot to not only their culture and their mindset, but again, just, uh, the effects of living the life that you have lived creates either the opportunity for you to survive or it, it kind of puts the nail in the coffin, uh, if you will. So where does it go from here? Um, I would imagine he's going to have to send in reinforcements. He's, you know, I was a little surprised that they're not using the Air Force, but obviously they're concerned because of the stingers uh, and the air defense systems that are still capable. And that's been huge for helping uh, Ukraine stave this off, right? I mean, we both enjoyed in our tours of combat air superiority, and right. that makes a huge difference for the boots on the ground. So um, I don't see anything good, obviously, coming out of this. If I was to try to guess, uh, I would say with a lot of the analysis that I've heard, I think they'll try to get to the point of getting to negotiations. They'll try to hold one third of the country. They'll keep that land bridge to Crimea. That, that in my opinion was the really the impetus um, in what they're really looking to do long-term. And then, uh, you know, they'll offer to pull back from the capital uh, they'll create a buffer zone and then you'll get all the negotiations and and that hopefully is how it ends rather than just getting so upset and 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 really being backed into a corner where they just say, you know, we're just going to have to take it and hold it. And then you'll have a demilitarized zone around Poland, you know, around uh, the borders with all of NATO, which only creates a scenario for the future of World War III uh, doesn't take away, you know, from that scenario. Right. 
no, I, I think that that's spot on and, and it's going to end up creating a new iron curtain. Uh, something that, that I want to revisit, you were talking about that, um, I think is, is incredibly important. You know, I've seen a lot of the other pundits out there, the, the analysis going back and forth from a lot of people who I have a mountain of respect for don't necessarily agree in all cases. And, and we shouldn't agree with anybody blindly, right. uh, you know, but I, I've seen a lot of different things floating around out there. Most notably, uh, Joel Skousen, who, you know, I, I have an incredible uh, amount of respect for for him. Also for Cleon Skousen, um, you know, his uncle writing The Naked Communist. That that's a, was an incredibly influential work on me um, and, and revisit it several times Um and and have revisited it several times and, and have read a, a, a slightly different way, getting something out of it uh, that's new each time that I've read it. I think that it's a foundational work um, for America. But one thing that, that Skousen's brought up that I think is is incorrect is he's talked about how the the basically the the first world army of Russia hasn't been pressed into battle. I would have agreed with that in the beginning because they were pushing a lot of their older equipment to the front, but I don't agree with that now because I've seen a lot of T-90s, uh, the, the wreckage of a lot of T-90s with the modern reactive armor. Um, we've seen all of that. And I mean, just the other day we had the commander of the VDV, uh, get killed. He's killed in action there which is, I think, extremely significant because the VDV are not conscripts. These are um, contracted soldiers. These are professional soldiers. Um, because in, in the Russian military model, that's they these guys have you you can't just enlist in the Russian army and get picked up for the the Russian airborne. That that's not the way that it works. You know, you you work up to that and. Um, you know, the British are very similar in that, too, with the, the parachute regiment. It, it's sort of the same. It's not like it, how it is, you know, he, in, in the American Army. You can, uh, it, you know, if, if you enlist, you can request a duty station. If you go to Fort Bragg, generally speaking, you're going to be in the deuce. And, you know, you, you're going to get that spot to go to airborne school. And, and that's just the way it is. It doesn't really work like that because in, in other countries. But you got the you got the commander of the VDV getting killed on the front line. Um, I believe outside of Kharkiv was where he was KIA. It was, it was last week. I'll have to go back and revisit my notes, kind of speaking off the cuff. So I don't necessarily agree with Skousen's assessment that, you know, they've, they've only been sending, you know, their, their, um, their, their baseline guys, the, the ones who, who are absent any sort of training, I don't necessarily agree with that, but it is important to know that, you know, Russia has a heavily conscripted army um, that makes up the basis for their forces, as you noted. And I, I agree 100 percent with you. I think that that uh, a lot of the, the mismanagement or at least what looks like the mismanagement of this war is not looking good for them, um, you know, and sifting through the propaganda on both sides because it's coming out hot and heavy. Right. Uh, but yeah, man, I, I I think you're exactly right, and it's important to note that 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 a lot of these guys that are on the front lines are are conscripted. The other thing that I want to bring up is the Russian fascination with the tactics of Ulysses Grant. Um, <clears throat> this is something that doesn't really get discussed that much. Um, it was something that I noticed uh, back in um, uh, it was about a decade ago when I first read The Bear Went Over the Mountain, which mm -hmm. is incredibly important for any student of foreign warfare. They need to read that book because that was the Russians account of their failures in Afghanistan. And um, one of the major generals who was writing it, it was uh, written by a, a lieutenant colonel named Lester Grau, uh, who's an American who, who was an attache to Raison Military Academy, which is their version of West Point. 
Um, he went over there as a, a, a professor of military science and was studying their, their failures there. And, and they were studying it as well. A lot of their contemporary doctrine, their combined arms doctrine as well, comes from uh, really in, in the modern era, comes from their successes in World War II and uh, the techniques of Field Marshal Zhukov. Zhukov, interestingly enough, cited Ulysses Grant and the Battle of Vicksburg as the essentially the, the way to win in modern warfare um, that you you don't necessarily account for the casualties. It depends on if you can win and if you can swarm you know how many troops you can swarm to the front and so we see this again we see you know this technique is coming out yet again in ukraine the russians seem to be emulating this tactic what 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 do you think about that what are you you seeing taking that into account what are you seeing on your end yeah i would you know so i kind of liken it to um so i so referencing back to like desert storm right as we pushed in I mean, so many people uh, just raised the the white flag. It slowed us down, actually, even though we moved rather quickly. But so many um, people surrendered. And one thing I noticed because I was gathering intelligence was uh, they didn't have the food and the supplies. They they weren't trained uh, because these were the conscripts, right? These were the ones that Saddam was willing to let be overrun and so he could hold back the Republican Guard, which was, you know, a, a decent military force. And so I think we're seeing a little bit of that, especially from the troops that came down through Belarus. Um, they obviously came from many different areas across Russia, and and many of them came way from the east and hadn't worked together uh, they that was why they did all those military drills prior to invading it one it was a, a show of force obviously and it was going to be used in trying to negotiate the fact that Ukraine can't join NATO and uh, they need to have that security buffer uh, but it was it, it it was trying to get all of those functioning together and so there is now, I haven't seen, I have seen like you have, I've seen, you know, the quality tanks that have come in, um, but you have seen the the mishmash, and I, I do believe that's slowing them down, but the oh, yeah. supply chains, you know, again, and that's what I'm talking about, like when we ran over them, these guys were, were literally, you know, going hungry, that's why they were willing to give up. Even though they right. knew they were, you know, outmanned, outgunned, uh, if they would have had better morale, they would have done more. And they were conscripts, you know, there in the front. So, yeah, it's not like Russia's no pushover. Don't get me wrong. And, you know, their Spetsnaz are as good as anybody's special forces. And special forces is special forces, right? So they get all the training, right. the equipment, just like our guys do. They actually, you know do the training, go on operations. They've been hardened through Chechnya, Georgia, and, and things of that nature. So where those exact forces are, I'm, I'm not quite sure, but I think that would be the next step. Um, now that you've softened up the enemy, you really bring in the, you know, that hammer to take your objectives and then be able to hold them, which obviously they can't hold the entire country. It, it just it's not going to happen. And now they're starting to get, you know, um, the fears of what happened in Afghanistan as well. Uh, but I don't see them giving up until they reach at least the minimal, you know, objectives that they were really after, even if they may have to, you know, go about it a little differently than what they thought as far as scheduling what's going on. And then at the end of the day, when they get that, which, you know, my opinion, again, is that land bridge, they won't give that up. Um, right. And then, right. They'll negotiate negotiate away the other things that they really weren't after, but they can use as a, a card to play at the negotiating table. So, yeah, I, I think the hammer is coming. Um, and 
fortunately for Ukraine, they, you know, they get all this intelligence pouring in, which is, is proven to be, you know, very uh, effective for them uh, coming in from the EU, coming in from uh, Great Britain as well as us. So even though uh, they don't have the system we do, we're sharing that in real time. And, and that's also maybe something that Putin miscalculated. Uh, certainly he didn't think McDonald's, Pepsi, you know, MasterCard, Visa, he, he could not have seen that coming either. So, yeah, I think he's left with the hammer. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, you know, your your analysis of the situation is uh, pretty close to mine. Um, it's pretty close to mine. I, I think the hammer will be falling. I don't think, though, uh, with talking about the, the spetsnaz, we know, like, spetsnaz is a term for them. It, it means troops of special distinction, uh, which I know you know that. Um, but for the, the general listeners out there, it, it's kind of a, uh, it's kind of a, a, an equivalent term to what we would use for SOCOM. Um, you know, there's a lot of elements to SOCOM out there. There's a, a, in, in units and stuff that are all part of it, but having their, their VDV commander, uh, getting, getting killed on the front, that's, that's a huge blow. It seems like the, the media I've seen, it's been a huge blow to them, um, I don't know, man, they, they're, they're even their VDV, the, you know, the airborne troops, they don't seem to be performing at least to the level that I would have expected them to. Um, they don't seem to be performing it as well, but I mean, again, we'll see. Um, there is a lot of disinformation coming out. So, you know, we don't, we don't really know for sure. And the Russians are, are pretty gifted in the arts of, of disinformation and deception uh, warfare. For sure. You know, the, the main difference, right. It, it's sort of like between even the weapons that we use, right. The argument over, you know, do you want an AK that packs the bigger punch or do you, you want an M4 that's more precise? And, and that's what their special forces are like. They are part of that mentality of just brute force over the, the tactics and over, not that they don't have any tactics, but they're getting their orders, right? We all know on the battlefield, it all, it, it comes from the officer corps and then the NCOs carry out that mission, right? With, with the tactical right. ability that they actually have. And, and I think that's part of the problem. I think unless they get a Zukov that really will be able to put them in a position so that those orders are uh, so that the order themselves are effective and by them then carrying them out in the end, you win the day. And I think that's part of the problem. I think it, it's the orders coming down from the top and uh, not completely due to the execution. But I would agree with you that I, I've been surprised um, at all levels of, of certain you know, the ineffectiveness. So there's, and it usually starts from the top, right? It usually doesn't start, it doesn't start with the boots on the ground. If you're put in a, in a bad position, you know, the outcome is going to be bad. Yeah. No, it, it's, it, you're exactly right. The, the NCO core issues has really been a, a perennial problem that the Russian army in particular has had because they, I, I did a lot of reading on this at, at one point, uh, professional study on it. And, um, you know, one of the reasons that the American military as as a entity and, and that's all of the branches of service, why we are as effective as we are. You noted that, you know, if the commander gets gets killed on the battlefield, first sergeant can step right up into that role. You know, he can he, he has the knowledge and experience. He can step right up into that role. You've got an executive officer that can do that. You know, if, if if the officer core itself gets broken down, you have the NCO core that is so strong and competent and built on demonstrated competency. A lot of your Eastern militaries are not structured that way. And, um, you know, I think that it's really important for a lot of the listeners out there to understand that 
because foreign militaries oftentimes are made out to be something they're they're not. And uh, I think the the Russian military is absolutely proving that to be true. Um, yet again, uh, you know, we saw it in Afghanistan. We saw it in the first Chechen war a little bit in the invasion of Georgia in 2008. Um, but very vibrantly on display now. Um, so it, it's going to be interesting. Shifting gears a little bit, though, man, that that analysis, I think, was spot on and and kind of turning our attention back to domestic issues here. You know, we're already seeing gas prices. That's kind of the most visible indicator of of the beginning of of the effects we're seeing at home. It's the first ripple in all this. You know, being an expert in preparedness, being a consultant for people's preparedness and and, you know, being a, a, a well-known guy in this field. What do you see as coming down the pipe as far as domestic ramifications that are coming next to the everyday American out there? Yes, unfortunately, um, we're seeing the turn uh, abrupt turn away from you know, the pandemic. And, you know, we never took that seriously in the sense that we just really did. And that's actually one of the studies that Dr. Drew Miller, uh, you know, the founder did. I mean, he's a Harvard grad. He was in think tanks. He did his dissertation on the effects of pandemics uh, and the possibility of nuclear war and so right from the beginning it was clear uh this one wasn't going to be the tipping point you know and and we as an organization and i personally uh i don't consider um the political part right so it's for me for us it's apolitical what we concentrate on is no matter who's in office no matter who's pushing these things what are the ripple effects and how does that affect us individually uh no matter where we're living within the united states so on the bright side thinking that way um the lockdowns are 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 being taken away we're going to see the ability to ramp up you know uh the infrastructure again for getting food to, uh, where it needs to go and people getting back to work and all those things that are very important so that we don't run into a situation that way. However, now you have inflation. So again, without being political, the idea of not producing more energy domestically is going to create a rippling effect as bad or if not worse than what COVID did and the shutdowns. This is going to get to the point where well, it's already right. I, I went on a supply run uh, just yesterday and, uh, you know, filled up my truck, cost me a hundred bucks and I get 17 miles to the gallon. I mean, so you, you yeah. start thinking about that um, and, and then all of the food costs, all of the. So I do see uh, if this continues, you know, without a sudden change and it becomes a slow slog in Ukraine, we're going to get back to people running out, trying to buy toilet paper, trying to buy food, stocking up. Uh, it's only it's going to make financial sense in more more than anything. And then you throw on top of that the fear of, you know, the possibility of a nuclear war or us being thrown into World War Three. Uh, you have this is just a snapshot. What we just went through is a snapshot of what I think we're heading towards, and it will be worse this time around if we continue down this road. Listen, people, the, the best advice I can give to everybody listening is you have to have a plan that you, you just can't react you have to be in a position where you've worked out your personal details on how this is, uh, you know, of what you're going to do. And if you're trying to hunker down in place, it's the most 
uh, difficult thing to do because your ability for an ecosystem is next to nothing. And then you're more of a target because if you have a small group of five people, you've got to keep people on right perimeter. You've got to always be on guard. Somebody has to sleep. It wears you down. I mean, you, you, the amount of work it takes to to have a effective ecosystem is a lot and time consuming. And then the other danger in that is when you do it in a small group, if you don't have somebody who's in charge, you're going to have infighting. I can't tell you how many times we get groups that have tried to do like their own little fortitude ranch, but they didn't have any real structure to it. And so they went belly up, whether it be because of finances or infighting. So we solve that, right? Staff is staff. Uh, we work together with our, our members, don't get me wrong, but we're in charge. And that's why we only hire ex-military or law enforcement. And this is very important. We are a community, it's not a dictatorship. We have you know, standard operating procedures, but what we work on is getting our members out here, getting them to know one another, doing that training. Here in West Virginia, we even had our members, uh, they formed their own group, uh, Friends of Fortitude Ranch, and they themselves are actively looking to solve the logistics and the problems and pitching in and doing those things that will be needed ahead of time. Because once the event happens, you're stuck in where you have how much preparedness you have done to that point, because then you're not going to go out and get, you know, more solar you're not going to go out and get the ability like the the simple pump because your well is no longer going to be able to operate and you won't have that ham hand mechanism to be able to do it you won't be able to go out and get a ham radio uh, you know to be able to set up comms you're stuck right there and then if something happens and when you look at where this could go from here the fragility of our electrical grid is it's mind-boggling actually um we have a so we have one of our investors he's well known in um the financial sector and and one of the things he's really been concerned about is that fact of the grid going down and he's about to release a uh, documentary on it. It's really well done. It's not over the top. It doesn't assume things. It, it, it explains, you know, how easy that would be uh, for EMPs or uh, other things to happen, even naturally, that will cripple us. So, oh yeah, oh, you know, yeah. for folks who's looking to prepare one of the things you've you've got to remember is power and you got to prepare to not have it right and you've got to augment that so you can't go too high tech because the high tech's going to need power so you've got to cover it on both bases so that you can exponentially use the technology if you have the power but on the other hand you have the backup right you have the hand pump You've thought these things through. Where are you going to get the big three? Food, water, shelter. You got to start. You know, that's where you have to start. And obviously security, you know, plays a big part in that. And, uh, you know, and and that's what my consulting role is all about. Um, Trying to help people actually craft a plan individually according to your situation. uh, Because, you know, you doesn't matter if you want to be a member of Fortitude Ranch, but I am trying to reach out and fill that gap for folks, you know, um, part of what we're doing overall as a company and and just me personally, because, uh, you know, that's why I got into this from the beginning. Yeah. Man, brother, that's what an interview, what an interview. I I couldn't agree more with you. That is, um, you know, in, um, Revisiting real quick because we're coming up on the hour. Uh, the the uh, documentary. What's that documentary called, and where can the listeners find it? Oh yes, uh, so it's uh, griddowndoc.com, and there you can see the trailer to it. He uh, so his name is David Tice. He's been on Bloomberg like 
a hundred times. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I know who he is. Yeah, yeah. So David's an investor. Uh, we have we have our Texas ranch uh, because of him and his impetus and 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 wanting to um, have something there. He came out to our training here in last May. I didn't know who he was. I didn't I didn't know he was that important in the financial world. And uh, but he came out and he attended our training. And he was so impressed in, in, at what we did. But not only that, it, it it brought to mind to him that while he's been preparing for many years, he doesn't have the expertise to carry this out. And he doesn't have the manpower um, to be able to do it. And so we've done a joint venture with him. And that's what brought about the, the Texas ranch. Uh, and that's the easiest way for us to do one because doing one from scratch is – just takes so much money. I mean, there's over a million dollars invested here in West Virginia. And, it, yeah. it, it, you know, it's so prohibitive to do it right. Right. And so the beauty is, you know, going back to skills, um, if I couldn't have handpicked a, a better component for what we're looking at. Right. We got four registered nurses. We got EMTs. We've got professionals. Uh, you know, retired military. I mean, just a, an incredible amount of people coming together to be able to uh, bring all those skill sets together. Then along with the training that we do, you know, we're pretty confident that, you know, we're going to be able to do what this uh, organization is all about if, you know, unfortunately that we would have to. It's a weird position, right? Morally, I'm like, for this company to do well, the country doesn't needs not to be doing well, and I don't like that part. But right, um, right. but I do I do appreciate the ability to be able to stand in the gap and you know and help the individual members and the surrounding communities. So griddowndoc.com, and I'm not sure when he's he, the final release will be. He was at the CPAC uh, when they had their convention. He had a booth there. Um, because, you know, you got to find somebody to produce it and uh, I mean, in mass quantities and and put oh, it yeah. out. But I'll let you know when once it is hitting the streets and, and uh, where to be able to pick that up. Oh, that's awesome. That is awesome, brother. Well, hey, what an incredible interview. Fortitude Ranch. I, I think you guys are doing some amazing work for a lot of great people out there. You're really making a, a, a big impact on the preparedness community as a whole. Brother, it, it has been an absolute honor to have you on. Any last things that you want to say for the Radio Contra audience? Uh, let me just reiterate again. Please, please, please have a plan. Um, we're not fear mongers, but we 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 see uh this you know we've we've raised our level of preparedness because of this unlike anything we've seen since we've existed as an organization this is the the biggest threat that that we've ever had to uh you know take under consideration and and we're reaching out to all of our members so that they can take it seriously as well but um, and this is not a pitch, but if if you need help in, in making that plan, survivalhousing.net is the organization that I run. I do a free consult. The initial consult is free uh, so I can get an idea of what you're looking to do and how I could possibly help. Um, even that part would be worth it for you. And then the uh, you know, if, if you would be interested in Fortitude Ranch, um, you can go to fortituderanch.com, but please understand because of the circumstances, I mean, memberships are flying. I mean, we, we've we've sold an incredible amount of them. And so if, if that's something you'd like to do, I would just encourage you to reach out quickly because, you know, we can't build fast enough and there's only so many people, you know, memberships that we have available. But uh, most of all, um, just think this through. I really believe we're, we're, it's that serious no i do too i do too brother thank you for being on today on radio contra thank you for taking time out of your incredibly busy schedule to uh share your insights with this audience and uh with me i i, I can't thank you enough uh god bless you thank you again Hey, my pleasure. Uh, it's a privilege for myself as well. And, um, you know, let's look to do some more networking so that it could, you know, be beneficial for both audiences.
Amen, brother. Amen. Well, folks, get out there. Get on it. Stay engaged. Fortitude Ranch, what an incredible organization. I'm going to have links down below to Fortitude Ranch. And, it, of course, in the show notes, as well as our other show sponsors that are going to be down there, click those links and you will be definitely helping us out as well. God bless everybody. Stay sane. Keep your head on a swivel. And we'll be talking to you again very, very soon. This is NC Scout out.